If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 153 of the Leading Learning Podcast. Today we're going to focus on how you can make the case for getting the new and better resources your learning business needs to succeed. Before we get to that topic though, we have a message from NextThought, our sponsor for the third quarter of 2018. Brought to you by NextThought, AssociationsNext.com is your opportunity to learn from some leading thinkers in e-learning and membership organizations, as well as giving you the chance to test drive the NextThought LMS platform. In this educational series, you'll uncover new knowledge about instructional design, digital strategy, and staying true to your organization's long-term goals in the face of rapid change. Kiki Latalian, Tracy King, and Lowell Applebaum lead the first three modules, and more courses will be added on a monthly basis. Visit associationsnext.com to enroll and experience the revolutionary Next Thought LMS for yourself. So as we head into the substance of this episode, I'll mention that we will post a slide deck that goes along with what we're going to cover today. We're basing this episode off of a content pod session that we did at our 2018 Learning Technology Design Virtual Conference. So we thought it would be valuable to provide the deck from that session. It has some useful visuals and you may want to view the deck as you listen to what we have to say or you might want to refer to it as a point of reference later to help you recall the points that we're going to cover. And speaking of the points that we're going to cover, we know that listeners inevitably hit times when their learning businesses need additional resources. That might mean new staff, new technology, extra contract help for a special project, you name it. But getting those resources may not be easy. Very often you have to convince someone else, maybe a boss, maybe your board or your investors, that the resources are really needed and that they will result in a positive return. So we want to offer some thoughts on how to make that case. But we should first offer a caveat of sorts, and that's that we come this come at this from a perspective that may be a, a little bit different than what you'd expect or typically hear. We do occasionally have to make a business case to each other internally at Tagoras, but in most cases, we're making a business case to a prospective client or helping the client make a business case internally. In either situation, what we're doing is selling. And our view is that regardless of whether you consider yourself a salesperson, when you're making a business case, you are selling. So it's extremely helpful to know some of the techniques of selling. And with that in mind, we're going to talk through some of the approaches and techniques we use and encourage organizations we work with to use. So once you accept that premise, once you know that making the business case is selling, then you have to know who's making the decision, what they care about, and why. And figuring out The answers to those questions may require some footwork. You've got to do a little bit of homework to figure out who makes the particular decision you're selling towards, what motivates them, and why. Now, this is a place where you want to be careful to check assumptions on any of those three parts, who makes the decision, what they care about, and why. It's really easy to misstep. You might think the decision maker is the executive director or the CEO, but it turns out it's really uh, a board decision or maybe vice versa. 
or maybe it's not even a board level or CEO level decision. Maybe the head of IT or HR or the VP of marketing has the ability to say yes to what you want. So you've really got to make sure that you're really clear on who the real decision maker is. Um, And once you know that, you still have to be careful not to misstep. It's really common for us as humans to want to ascribe our own emotions and motivations to other people. But don't do that. Don't assume that the decision maker cares about the same things you do. Really put yourself in the decision maker's shoes and think about what they care about. And also look for evidence of what they care about. So above and beyond what they might say they care about, what actions have you seen them take that show you what they care about? And if you're dealing with multiple decision makers, which can be the case, then be aware that you may need to tailor your case for different individuals. And this is all by way of saying that there's no single approach that is going to work across the board in all your business case-making situations. Now, that said, we do have five points that will apply in almost all business case-making situations. It's just how you use or employ these five points is going to vary based on the particular case you're making and to whom. So point one is that you should always look to your strategy. The key outcome of any well-formulated strategy is that it provides a framework for making decisions. So creating a strategy narrows your choices. It focuses you in on the activities that will most contribute to making progress. So once you have a strategy in place, it becomes a point of reference for all the choices that you have to make in running your learning business. And whether you're making decisions about technology or hiring or which products to develop or which marketing campaigns to run, you should always be asking, does this actually support our strategy? And if it doesn't, you shouldn't do it. So first, you need to make sure that the more or better resources that you're asking for really jibe with the strategy. If they don't, then we would recommend you abandon the request that you shouldn't even go after the more or better resources in that case. But assuming that the more and better resources do align with your strategy, then referencing that strategy is a really powerful stance because it highlights the common ground. It highlights that decision-making framework that you and the decision-maker share. And now if you think in general about disagreements, And the need to make a business case often arises because there's some level of disagreement or at least a a question about what to spend on. If you think about disagreements in general, they tend to be about the destination or goal or how you get to that destination or achieve that goal. And in both situations, strategy helps. And it's probably worth talking a little bit about what what strategy is here to make sure we're really homing in on it. So the three essential components of a strategy are diagnosis, guiding policy, and coherent action. And these terms come from Richard Rummelt's excellent work, um, in particular his book, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, which we very, very highly recommend. So your diagnosis is going to center on the challenge, and it simplifies the complex by identifying the essential critical aspects of a situation. So what we have to pay attention to, basically. In a diagnosis related to a learning business strategy, the challenge often deals with competition and change, for example. So 
you know, competition is about where else your learners go or can go for their education needs. Change is about the shifts that are inevitably occurring in the environment around you and tension that exists between where you are now and where you want and need to be. So you create a hypothesis about what's going to get you from where you are now, the present state where the challenge exists, to where you want to be, the future state where the challenge has been dealt with. So Jeff was just talking about diagnosis. The second component to strategy is a guiding policy. And a guiding policy is the response to the challenge that you identified during the diagnosis. How are you going to deal with the obstacles that you know exist? A guiding policy provides a a path for how to achieve that ideal future state. And in a strategy for a learning business, the guiding policy very often builds on or creates uh, leverage or advantage. And then coherent actions are the third and final component of a good strategy. And coherent actions are designed to carry out the guiding policy. So these are the steps coordinated with each other, working together, that are going to accomplish the guiding policy. And that idea of coordination is really key because without coordination, that is, without the work you did in in the diagnosis stage to really understand your situation, and without the work you did to develop a guiding policy, you might be engaging in activities that um, dilute your efforts or or even worse, actually um, work at cross purposes. And so, you know, to tie that back to making the business case for more or better resources, again, you look at your strategy and you clearly spell out how those new or better resources are consistent with the strategy. And that means, you know, that maybe the resources relate directly to the key challenge or challenges that you identified in the diagnosis that's at the heart of your strategy. Maybe those resources factor into the guiding policy that you've set, that response that you've formulated for addressing the challenge that you diagnosed. Or maybe the resources are essential for making it possible to carry out one or more of the coherent actions that you've identified. And in a learning business strategy, the coherent actions usually deal with resource allocation and actions around product design, product development, and marketing and selling. And since your resources, namely time and money, are limited, and that's true even in very well-heeled organizations, even there resources are limited. So it's really important to coordinate your efforts. So what you're investing in is actually helping you with your strategy in as direct and targeted a way as possible. So the need to make a business case often comes when there's some level of disagreement about what to spend time and money on. And as I mentioned, disagreements tend to be about the goal or how you achieve that goal. But strategy, this kind of three-component strategy that we're talking about, it helps ensure that you and whoever has the power to deny or approve your request for new or better resources are truly on the same page about that goal. That's your ideal future state and that you're also in agreement uh, around the general plan for how you achieve that goal because you're doing that via the guiding policy and coherent actions. And the power of that strategic alignment can be really significant. It can be in fact, invaluable in making a business case for new and better resources. And now the second point we want to offer around making the business case for new or better resources is to nail your OMV. 
And those are the letters O, M, and V standing for objectives, measures, and value. This is a concept we draw from Alan Weiss, who is known as the million dollar consultant and is also well known for helping people write proposals that win. And, uh, and it draws on the basis we've used for every single one of our own proposals over the past decade. And, and we have, in fact, had a very high winning percentage with our proposals because we have paid very careful attention to OMV, Objectives, Measures, and Value. We're very careful in the first place to make sure that we've diagnosed the situation, which, as we've just discussed, is a fundamental part of strategy, and that we've understood the key objective or objectives that the decision maker seeks to achieve. And sometimes that's clear, just depending on the situation and whether the strategy work has been done properly, but often it takes quite a bit of dialogue to, to draw out and really focus the objective so they're truly meaningful to that decision maker. Now, once we've gone through the process and gotten clear agreement around the objectives and how they really resonate with that particular decision maker, we're gonna develop metrics or measures that we agree with that decision maker are going to demonstrate that the objectives have been achieved. And then finally, we're gonna to work to reach an agreement around the overall value or impact that will result from pursuing the proposed initiative and achieving the objectives that's gonna be possible with these new resources that uh, we're making our case for. And I think it's important to emphasize here that that we're not just talking about tangible financial value. You, you definitely need to be prepared with the appropriate financial projections um, that are going to demonstrate a return on whatever um, you're proposing, but, but you also need to look at intangible and complementary value that might be produced. So um, maybe... Um, what you're asking for is going to help elevate the brand of the organization. Um, maybe it will help attract a historically untapped uh, member or, or customer segment. And don't just focus on value to the organization. Are there ways in which um, what you're asking for will create value that is personally important to the decision maker? Maybe it's going to support a pet project of, of theirs, for example, or maybe it's just going to make the person look good. And the reason for doing all of this is to get to what we call conceptual agreement before you ever ask for a firm commitment, before you ask someone to say yes to the resources you're requesting. So if you have agreed to the objective or objectives and to the measures and to the value that will be generated and the value is clear and desirable, then moving to commitment becomes dramatically easier. And we encourage you to you know, really treat this like a proposal process, like you're, like you're you know, trying to win this decision maker as a customer, write it down, review it together, have the decision maker actually engage in making edits to the objectives, to the measures, to the values, those OMVs that we were talking about. And when you do this, they become much more bought into the process and much more bought into implementing when the time comes. So the third point is to leverage teaching as your main selling tool, or to put it more briefly, teach to sell. The reference we like to rely on for this approach is a book called The Challenger Sale by Matthew Dixon and Brett Admondson. And the basis for the book is that Dixon and Admondson analyzed the performance data for a wide range of salespeople. And then they classified these people according to characteristics that defined the selling method that they tended to use. And their work was focused on what is usually known as solution selling, so selling solutions to relatively complex problems. So in that sense, similar to what anybody who is making a business case must do. 
And this is a great book, regardless of whether you consider yourself a salesperson or not, that the types of uh, uh, approaches and techniques they talk about are invaluable. We'll be sure to, to link to the Challenger sale in the show notes. Now, in that book, they identified five major types of salespeople, the hard worker, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, the problem solver, and the challenger. Now, I'm not going to go through the details of every one of those, but the challenger, as you might guess, was by far the most successful type. And the key characteristic of this type of salesperson was that she uses teaching as her major selling technique. And she's called a challenger because she's not afraid to challenge the status quo and educate decision makers about how things can be different and better. As Dixon and Adamson put it, the thing that really sets challenger reps apart is their ability to teach customers something new and valuable about how to compete in their market. Now, obviously, this implies knowing the situation and capabilities of your organization extremely well, and also knowing what the opportunities really are. So a key question to ask in preparing to make a business case is, how well do you know these things? What kind of footwork do you need to do And once you have done it, what kinds of teaching situations can you create for helping to make your case? The fourth point is that you should pre-suade. Robert Cialdini, who is arguably um, the foremost authority um, around influence and persuasion, uh, in his most recent book, he tackles the topic of what he calls pre-suasion. And pre-suasion is built around the ideas of anchoring and priming. So anchoring, which is sometimes also called the focusing effect or the focusing illusion, is base, is basically an attentional bias, um, and uh, that means what we pay attention to, and, and we tend to rely too heavily on the first piece of information offered. So that's the anchor. And we rely on it too much when making decisions. And then priming refers to how our attention and responses are systematically biased by what we've just been exposed to. So exposure to one stimulus influences the response to another stimulus. Now taken together, priming and anchoring mean that whatever first captures our attention is seen as important, causal, and it directs our response. And it is truly amazing how powerful this can be. Uh, We do in fact have uh, an interview with Dr. Robert Cialdini talking about persuasion and, and some of his other work. And, and he goes uh, through some examples. But, uh, but just for some, some quick examples here, um, if you want people to agree to an expensive purchase, uh, for example, first arrange for them to write down a number that's much larger than the investment required. If you want people to improve performance, First, expose them to images and words associated with performance like win, attain, succeed, master. If you want people to be more helpful to you, first have them look at photos of individuals standing close together. And if you want people to agree to try an untested product, first inquire whether they consider themselves adventurous. Now, Cialdini isn't saying, and neither are we, that persuasion is magical. Using it definitely does not guarantee that you're going to win your audience over, but the odds are pretty good that persuasive tactics will help your cause. So if you're really serious about making your business case, definitely take some time to understand persuasion and the techniques that it suggests. So the fifth and final point is that we suggest that you follow through with influence. 
So you've, you've used logic and you've used argument in the uh, earlier points, especially when you're looking at the strategy and you're trying to nail those objectives, measures, and value. And then you've begun to teach and to persuade. And then this final point really drives home that you need to draw not only on logic and reason and well-structured arguments, those are important, do use them, but you also need to draw on psychology and specifically the psychology of persuasion and influence. And so that leads us back to Dr. Robert Cialdini, and in particular, his book, Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion. And through a lot of research, uh, lit review, and even hands-on experimentation, he spent time undercover as a door-to-door vacuum salesman. But doing all of that, Cialdini arrived at six principles of influence, and you can draw on one or more of these principles when making your business case for more or better resources. So the first of his six principles is reciprocation. And this is the impulse to repay in kind what another has provided us. So this is why organizations send us calendars or mailing labels when they ask for a donation. Um, So think about who you're making your business case to and think about what you can do to be helpful to them. Because helping them will make them more likely to help you. So reciprocation is the first one. Next comes commitment and consistency. We have an innate desire to appear consistent with our previous actions. So in addition to this strategic alignment that our first point, look to strategy, ensures, it also plays on this principle. If the decision maker agreed on the strategy and you have shown how the ask you're making ties to the strategy, then the decision maker is going to want to support the request because it's consistent with their past behavior. The next one, social proof, gets at the human tendency to look to others to confirm what is correct or acceptable. And especially if you're dealing with a group of decision makers, not single individuals, you can leverage this principle As you start to get buy-in from some folks, you can use that to enlist others. The fourth principle that Cialdini outlines is liking. So we have a strong inclination to engage positively with people we like. So one way this might play out in making the case for new resources is by being aware of personal dynamics. If you and a decision maker don't have the best relationship, maybe you can involve a colleague who has a better relationship in making the case. The next uh, principle is authority. So we, as, as humans, we have a compulsion to conform to the demands of authority. So, but even if the decision maker has more authority in the context of your organization than you do, you can still use authority. If you're asking for more resources um, that improve your approach to evaluation, go and find some expert uh, research to bring uh, to bear. Um, you might turn to Dr. Will Tallheimer's research and writing and use that. So go to the experts, go to the authorities in whatever domain you're asking for resources in, and then use what they've written, what they've said, um, use their research to make your case. So we've covered reciprocation, commitment and consistency, social proof, liking, and authority. And the last of Cialdini's principles is scarcity. We tend to view something as more valuable when its availability is limited. And this, of course, is what drives things like the limited time only or limited supply type claims that we see in a lot of advertising. And you might be able to make use of something like a 
first mover advantage type argument in, in making your case. So if we don't act now, then this other organization is going to do it before we do. That can be very effective. Those are just you know some of the ideas how, of how you might apply all six of these principles to making the case for new and better resources. But there's certainly other ways that you can use them. So think through the principles and your, with your specific case in mind and your decision maker and their motivations in mind too. And you don't need to use all six when you're making your business case, but plugging even one in can help inform how you go about making the ask for new and and better resources and producing a more persuasive result in the end, since that's what you're going for. So just to, to revisit what we've covered here, we talked about looking to strategy as one of the, the, the first ways to, to make your business case, really tying it to strategy. We talked about nailing the OMV, the objectives, measures, and values. We talked about teaching to sell, how being able to teach is often the most powerful way to be able to sell. We talked about persuading to set the stage, drawing on Robert Cialdini's work, those things that you can do to make people uh, receptive to your idea, to your business case. And then continuing to draw on Cialdini, we talked just now about following through with influence. So those are kind of our five approaches to help you with making a business case for new and better resources. We've found these approaches to be very successful in our work, and we've seen again and again in organizations where people have gotten the resources they need. They may not have been you know, listening to us and taking directly what we say, but they've been doing these sorts of things to, to really make that business case. So those are our five tips. Now it's up to you to put them to use to get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 153. This includes access to the accompanying slide deck that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. When you check out the show notes, you'll also see the various options for subscribing to the podcast. You can, of course, come to the website every week and listen to the podcast episodes there. But if you're getting value out of what you hear, we'd be grateful if you would consider actually subscribing so it can show right up there on your mobile phone or or other device, and you'll be able to grab it whenever you're working out or, or whatever it is you do while you're listening to podcasts. We'd be grateful if you would take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. Jeff and I personally appreciate your ratings and reviews, but even more importantly, reviews and ratings play a role in helping the podcast crop up when would-be listeners are searching for content on learning and leading. So consider leaving a rating and a review for the Leading Learning Podcast as one of your kind acts for the day. And we'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to visit associationsnext.com. Salise and I put a lot of effort into the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the main reasons we're able to do that is because of the support of our sponsors like Next Thought. So please visit associationsnext.com where you'll have the chance to learn and to experience the Next Thought LMS in action. And of course, while you're there, you're going to be able to get a wealth of great content from people like one of our former podcast guests, Kiki Latalian. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send a tweet out by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, just pick the social network or other medium of your preference and spread the good word. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.